Respectability po- politics. Respectability, yeah, respectability politics. You knew where I was going. Now, I don't think. What's up, everybody? This is Karen O'Horn, and you are listening to the Blurred Girl Podcast. Now, folks, are you ready for San Diego Comic Con? I'm not. I'm not even packed yet. (laughs) I'm procrastinating, actually, by doing this podcast. As promised, in this episode, I'm going to continue with my final interview for Marvel's Luke Cage on Netflix. And today I talked to Cheo Hidari Coker. Now, I'm sorry I couldn't get this interview up before the holiday, but I had a death in the family and had to go out of town. But before I left, he shared his thoughts on season two, and we talked spoilers. And I asked him straight up about the controversy surrounding the respectability politics that many folks complained about in season one and, you know, why he chose to make the decisions that he made in season two. So stay tuned for that. Also, I've got quite a bit of tech news. And of course, since I'm going to San Diego Comic-Con next week, just a few of my predictions. Stay tuned. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Now, Audible is offering listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership just for listening to the Blur Girl podcast. All you got to do is go to audibletrial.com slash theblurredgirl. That's audibletrial.com slash theblurredgirl and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs that they have to offer. You can download a title for free and just start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash theblurredgirl, T-H-E-B-L-E-R-G-G-U-R-L to get started today. Now, why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And if you're anything like me, you're busy. Audible makes it incredibly easy to catch up on books while I'm commuting, cleaning the house, working out, driving, whatever. It just makes multitasking easy. Now, if I were you, I would totally take advantage of a 30-day free trial and download a book or two that you've been meaning to read. Looking for suggestions? Well, I would definitely check out Shadow Shaper by Daniel Jose Older and the follow-up to that book, Shadow House Falls, Both are incredible fantasy books, and they are narrated by actress and singer Anika Noni Rose. And she sounds amazing. And she plays all the roles, like, in the story. It's really, really good. I listened to both of those books on an out-of-state road trip, and it made the time just fly by. So get started with Audible today. They've got a really simple app to use so you can literally listen from anywhere. Download your free audiobook today at audibletrial.com slash theblurredgirl. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash theblurredgirl for your free audiobook. This week in tech news, we're talking Apple, a real-life Skynet, because, of course, creepy robots, and some actual good news in the tech sector. Uh, But first up, Apple has finally admitted that their laptop keyboards suck, specifically the MacBook Pro and MacBooks that were made between 2015 and 2017. Apparently, the keyboard has been failing every few months. Letters either don't appear, don't respond, or multiple letters come up repeatedly. This isn't just if you, like, spill something on it. Apparently, if a speck of dust gets in the keyboard, it can make the whole thing go haywire. This apparently goes back as far as 2015. And, in fact, I had this problem with my, I think it was 2016 MacBook Pro, and I remember taking it to tons of different stores and them telling me that I must have spilled something on it, which I didn't. Um, I had... The hard drive changed, the entire keyboard, it was completely wiped, got it fixed again. I ended up selling it, actually. But apparently, this affects all early 2015 to 2017 MacBook Pro models, and now Apple is retroactively fixing them and possibly reimbursing you. Apparently, there was a, there were three, not just one, but three class action lawsuits brought against them for this technical problem, so now they're obligated to fix it. For more information on this, I would check out 9to5mac.com. That's the number 9, 2, T-O, the number 5, M-A-C.com. They have a nice listing there. If you look up Apple finally acknowledges keyboard, they have a nice listing there of all of the models that are affected and what you can do. So definitely check that out. And 
the, the thing that only thing that bothers me about this is they're not giving you a brand new keyboard. They're just fixing the one that you already have, which I feel like we've already done. I don't know. So let me know in the comments if you had your MacBook or MacBook Pro repaired under this service. And I'm curious to see when that it really works or when that you're having problems again. By the way, this does not affect MacBook Air. I have a MacBook Air now and I haven't had a single keyboard issue with it. And apparently all of the new 20, 2018 MacBook Pros, I don't know. They come with a dust repellent maybe. This next story, China apparently has acquired Skynet. I'm not kidding. Just listen, hear me out. So according to a report in the New York Times... In Zhengzhou, China, cops wear facial recognition glasses to catch criminals. And in Qingdao, cops have been snatching up alleged criminals using AI-controlled facial recognition cameras. So like the cameras inside of the road, at road actually have AI in them that is attached to a database with facial recognition software. Even Beijing is adopting the system and trying to track over a billion people through facial recognition AIs. The interesting thing, though, is the way in which they're using it. It's sort of a combination of tech and straight-up embarrassment they're using to keep law and order. For instance, in some parts of China, there are digital billboards where everyone from jaywalker to tax evaders' faces are projected on huge billboards to sort of shame people into behaving properly. Like, you don't want your face to end up on the board. You also have to realize China is a communist country, not a democracy. So our concept of invasion of privacy doesn't really apply here. In fact, in a direct quote from the Times, invasive mass surveillance software has been set up in the West to track members of a Muslim minority and map their relations with friends and family, according to software that was actually viewed by the New York Times. This, of course, has been met with civil rights criticisms, as it should be, um, because it's just assuming that all Muslims are terrorists, which is terrible. But you know who isn't criticizing it? The Chinese tech biz. <laughs> apparently, there's really big money in surveillance. And apparently, there's even a startup run now by a former Google scientist that has a company called iCool, E-Y-E-C-O-O-L. iCool has installed surveillance systems in over 20 train stations and airports throughout China and hands over all its facial recognition findings to a big data police network called, wait for it, Skynet. They've actually named it Skynet. In lighter news, a new $100 million fund for women of color has been announced. Now, for those sisters that are listening to this podcast, I'm sure many of you have heard of the company Shea Moisture, right? Well, the founder of Shea Moisture, Richelieu Dennis, um, is Liberian, and he came here years ago and started that company with his college roommate, Naima Tubman. He created an umbrella company after the success of that called Sundial Corp. And Sundial owns Nubian Heritage, Niako, and Madam C.J. Walker. Yes, that brand that just randomly popped up all loud and expensive at Sephora last year. That one. Anywho, mega brand Unilever, which if you don't know, is a British Dutch company headquartered in London, I believe, bought out Sundial last year. Now, just to give you some perspective, Unilever owns Hellman's, Knorr, Lipton, Lux, Axe, like Axe Body Spray, Dove, you know, all the soaps and the body wash and stuff, and Ben & Jerry's, just to name a few of the companies. Well, also last year, Unilever and Sundial announced that they would create a new investment vehicle to empower minority women entrepreneurs called the New Voices Fund, to which they would commit an initial $50 million. Well, at Essence Fest last weekend, Dennis announced that number has been up to $100 million and that about a third of the money has already been invested in women of color who are entrepreneurs. Now, this is amazing news, and hopefully we'll see more black female businesses, not just in the beauty sector, get to participate. You know what? Actually, I take that back. We might need them because now Nubian Heritage is owned by a Dutch company. History just somehow keeps repeating itself. I'll be right back. 
folks, just jumping in real quick to see if you know about the Blur Girls shop on Tee Public. In there, I have tees, totes, sweatshirts, mugs, even onesies, and some really great sayings and quotes. All the proceeds of the purchases go towards support of this year podcast, as well as operation fees. So please, if you support this podcast, the site, and the Blur Girl channel, please purchase from the store. There's two ways to get there. One is to go to theblurgirl.com slash store on my website, and you can also check us out on Instagram by following the Blur Girl shop. I have an app set up right inside of Instagram, so you can shop right from the app itself, and it will take you to the store, and you can buy whatever you want. So I appreciate the support. Now, back to the show. Now let's talk geek news. On June 29th, legendary Marvel artist Steve Ditko died at 90 years old. Now, most Marvel fans think of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby when it comes to iconic characters like Spider-Man. But artist Steve Ditko was actually responsible for the look and the feel of the characters like Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and also some of the storylines, too. It was Ditko that gave us characters like Captain Adam and the second iteration of the Blue Beetle and a little-known character named Mr. A, who eventually became The Question. It's also widely known that Alan Moore, who was influenced by The Question, actually used Ditko's sort of prototype to create Rorschach in Watchmen. Similar concept with the mask and uh, like a vicious sense of justice. He also had something to do with the creation of Hawk and Dove. Not the rebooted version with the female dove, Don Granger, but the siblings, Hank and Don Hall. What I didn't know is that Ditko also created Squirrel Girl back in the 90s. So the popular The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl by Ryan North and Erica Henderson that launched in 2014 is actually a reboot. And subsequently, the first time the character has had a solo series. So of all these characters, though, Spider-Man was absolutely the one that Ditko influenced the most And I think he was the person that created the Spider-Man that I grew up with. Now, it's commonly thought that scripts are written for comics and then an artist creates the art based on the script. And for the most part, this is true. But in the 50s and 60s, when Ditko was working on Spider-Man with Stan Lee, things worked a little different. Ditko actually would draw the pages first and then hand lead the artwork with spaces for the words to fill in. So essentially, Steve Ditko was driving the story. This was dubbed the Marvel method, quote unquote, by the way. And there's been much speculation about how it actually worked. But there is a Stan Lee video I saw once about him talking about this artist-driven way of making comics. But this method has clearly been abandoned by Marvel if you've read any of the Brian Michael Bendis Spider-Man stuff. It's good, don't get me wrong, but very wordy. And there's no way the art could have been done first. And speaking of Bendis, though, he would never have been able to work on Spider-Man or create a Miles Morales or anything at all if it wasn't for Steve Ditko. So Steve Ditko, gone at 90 years old, may he rest in peace, but he lives on through the characters that he created. Now, in other comic book news, movie news, really, Ant-Man and the Wasp has been beating out their Incredibles for the past two weeks and a lot of other things. And it's been making a lot of money, not Black Panther money, but a lot of money. But Incredibles has actually made records of its own because it's the first animated movie to make more than $500 million domestically at the box office. Not bad for a 15 year wait for a sequel, right? And we can't forget to talk about San Diego Comic-Con this week. This is like, you know, the Geek Awards (laughs) and I'm actually going to be there. Sci-fi is flying me out. And this year, I feel it's really going to be a DC Comics-dominated arena because there's no Star Wars. There's no new Marvel movie coming. There are new shows coming as well, but I mean, I think we're going to be seeing things from DC like Aquaman. I mean, I really would like to see a trailer and stop seeing that same gif of water being splashed on Jason Momoa. Let's get a little bit more. I'm really excited to also see whatever they can show of Titans. The panel I really want to be at, that is actually uh, a sci-fi wire panel, is the Great Debate panel with John Barrowman, Orlando Jones, Aisha Tyler, who, for those of you who don't know, is the Blurred Girl patron saint. I go into this. I actually went into this on the podcast this week on Who Won the Week. So go listen to that and you'll know why. And Joe Maganello, that's apparently on Thursday at 4.45. But I'm going to have to run if I'm going to make it because I'm hosting the Sci-Fi Network Night Flyers panel, which starts at 3 p.m. Now, for those of you who don't know, Night Flyers is a horror story, or I should say a psychological thriller based on the George R.R. Martin book of the same name. Yes, there was a live action movie back in the day. Yes, it was completely whitewashed. We'll get to that. But 
The story was basically about a ship of scientists in space in the future searching for an alien race while dealing with crazy stuff happening on the ship itself. Like an elusive captain who's only seen by hologram. And unlike Star Trek, everyone in this universe is petrified of telepaths. Their computer engineer doesn't just talk to the ship, she interfaces with it. The nemesis is basically an unknown entity that just starts offing people, but you can't tell whether or not it's like hallucinations. Is it the telepath? Is it the captain? Or is it just the crew just being frightened of each other? So it's really fascinating because it's sort of like a, a, a glimpse at the human condition in this contained environment. Now, for those of you familiar with the story, when the book originally came out, they did whitewash one of the main characters, Melantha, who was clearly a black woman in the book, but they fixed that in the series. Trust me, this is a really very realistic looking cast. If you're going to San Diego Comic-Con and you're there Thursday, please get over to the Hilton Bayfront and the Indigo Ballroom at 3 p.m. Well, before them, obviously, for that panel. You're going to be able to meet some of the cast members. And I'll just give you like a little bit of taste. Uh, Gretchen Mall. Uh, she plays Dr. Agatha Matheson. She's going to be there. Owen Mackin, who is Carl DeBrannon. He's one of the main uh, scientists. Jody Turner-Smith, who plays Melantha. David Ajala, who plays actually the ship's captain. And Angus Sampson, who plays Rowan. They're going to be there, along with Jeff Bueller, who's the executive producer, writer, and showrunner, and a couple of the producers. So definitely, definitely get there. And I, I can't tell you what we're going to show because rules and my job, but I can say that there's going to be some special things that are going to be shown there that will not be like put up on social later or, you know, posted until much, much later in the fall when the show drops. So if you're a fan of George R. R. Martin and you're a fan of science fiction and thrillers in space, this is, you, you need to be at this panel. And, you know, also, I'm going to be there. Hello. <laughs> I'm also excited to see what's revealed about Deadly Class because I like the Image comic series. But before you think this is all about sci-fi, let me tell you about some other things I'm geeked out about. There's a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles interview that I might be doing, and I heard it's with one of the animated characters live. So I guess it's sort of like a VR environment where they let me talk to one of the animated characters. I don't know which one it is, one of the turtles, and the voice actors won't be there. So there'll be somebody voicing it, and then there'll be, I guess, a VR puppeteer that'll be handling it. It's going to be a lot of fun. So that's something else that you have to look forward to. And then of course, there's a couple of other panels I'm interested in, like the Afrofuturism pan panel with Dennis Cowan, Reggie Hudland of Milestone, and of course, the legendary Nichelle Nichols, who played Uhura for years on Star Trek. She's also on the Fangirls panel as well. So Nichelle's getting work that week. I'm very happy to see her. She's just such a hero of mine. Keith Chow of Nerds of Color, he has a panel he's on, and it's called Super Asian America. That's on Sunday, along with Preeti Chipper's panel on Sunday called The Fake Geek Girl Fallacy. I cannot wait to be in the Q&A for that one. And then, of course, parties. If you're all about the parties, Women in Comics and the Nerds of Color are having a co-sponsored event at the Hilton Bayfront again on Friday. Totally check out the Nerds of Color and Women in Comics Collective to get information on that. Sci-Fi also has a party both Friday and Saturday at the Children's Museum. And actually, speaking of the Children's Museum, I'm going to be bouncing around between there, the convention itself, and the Hilton Bayfront because Sci-Fi is basically setting up camp at the Children's Museum with a whole bunch of activities for fans, like apparently a human toy grab. So you know those games you play where you activate a mechanical arm well, you pay, you put coins in, you activate a mechanical arm and it gives you like 10 seconds to grab a toy. Well, think of that, except instead of a claw, it's like a human being on a bungee cord or something. Well, think of that instead of, but instead of a claw, it's like a human being on a bungee cord or something. I know. Dangerous, I guess, but fun. And then in the meantime, I have to catch up on like a ton of shows. I'm finished catching up on Westworld. Cloak and Dagger and Into the Badlands, almost done with. And I've got like 567 things to do and watch before San Diego Comic-Con, but I'm going to get there. But enough about me. Up next, you'll hear my latest interview with Cheo Hadari Coker, showrunner for Marvel's Luke Cage Season 2 on Netflix. And this is full of spoilers because I had seen the whole season by the time I got a chance to talk to him about it. So all that and more right after this. 
Do you run a hosted website on WordPress or is your site really slow? Have you gotten hacked in the past and you just didn't know what to do? Well, if so, you need SiteGround. Now, I am a SiteGround affiliate. I'm also a customer. In fact, I switched the blurredgirl.com over to them and never looked back. In fact, I've put other people onto them for two reasons, for liability and customer service. You can try it yourself at siteground.com slash go slash the girl. That's siteground.com slash go slash the girl. Now, unlike some other hosting sites that have a really great affiliate program and seem to be really popular, many of them don't have customer service. SiteGround has great customer service. They don't talk to you like an idiot. If you can't find something, they'll help you work through it. They have a really easy control panel. And SiteGround is really the truth. You can start hosting your site today for as low as $3.95 a month. You can run a store, a blog, anything really. And they can even move your whole existing site over for you from another hosting service. And you don't have to worry about a bunch of code and stuff. So if you've been blogging or running a website for a while now, it's time to take your site and its security seriously and move up to SiteGround. Sign up today at SiteGround.com. That's S-I-T-E-G-R-O-U-N-D.com slash The Blurred Girl. Welcome back. Now, did you just finish Luke Cage season two? I'm not going to judge you. Not everybody can binge watch. (laughs) Are you almost finished? It's okay. But this next interview is very, very spoilery. So if you haven't yet finished the season, I suggest you go and finish, then come back here and listen, okay? Now, back in June, or wait, it might have been May, (laughs) when showrunner, writer, and creator Che Hodari Coker started his press tour about the show, I got a chance to interview him for Sci-Fi Wire on camera. If you haven't seen that, go go to the YouTube channel for Sci-Fi Wire and look up Cheo. You'll see a couple of interviews there. Many of you have seen that interview on the that channel, but what you don't know is that same day, I was also scheduled to record a, this podcast interview with him. Well, his schedule got kind of away from him, and I ended up meeting him for dinner in Brooklyn <laughs> and actually recorded this podcast in the middle of the restaurant. Thank God for my Zoom H6, man. I love that little thing. So if you hear the sounds of clinking glasses and murmured voices, that's because I, again, like my interview with the Mystics, was recording in a restaurant. Enjoy. There's a lot of themes that you bring out this season that I find just fascinating. Um, And with Luke, let's talk about, like, his anger a little bit. Like, you have a a powerful scene with, with Claire that... I, I just thought, first of all, that scene was amazing because you're showing his frustration and his anger, but you're also showing how she's reacting mm-hmm. and she has some history there. What what was the impetus from that? Was that, was well, that the, a personal know, experience? The, the, or? The, one, the one thing is just like we wanted to show black male anger with nuance because angry black man is frankly a cliche. So we wanted to show an angry black man who is angry about being self-righteous against a man who just said we just committed domestic violence yeah without realizing that his own anger even though there was no actual physical interaction between him and Claire Temple could have been considered violent yeah and it was only with his realization about punching the wall and her reaction that he realized that I need to get control of this but not because he was in any danger of, of, of hitting Claire but more from the understanding that um he didn't realize that his actions, even in just in terms of his emotion, needed to be in check. So yeah. it was a, it was a lesson for Luke, but then at the same time, he it was a wake up call in, in in many ways. Because the thing is, is that um, having interviewed many cops, you know, because of Southland and and, and other shows that, that I've been involved with, it's you know there are people that enforce the law that doesn't realize that the law actually you know, applies to them as well. And so it was interesting because you know, Matt Owens wrote, wrote, the, wrote the script, but when we were like, you know, looking at the scene and just thinking about what it was, it had to be about more than just self-righteous anger because the whole thing that Claire was trying to communicate to him is that until you solve this, this anger that's been eating at you is going to permeate your entire soul. And if you live in anger, then that anger is going to begin to test those things that you're not angry about, including me. Now, speaking of anger, I really think that Bushmaster and Anansi 
that relationship was interesting because he's, even though Anansi was a lesser character, he was a very powerful one because he, he helped raise, for all right. sorts of purposes, he helped raise John. So he cautioned him. It was, it, it was a lot of this season was a cautionary tale. Like, if you let your anger take over, no, it's not right, but if you let it go too far, you know, yeah. it's on the... Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. There we go. Hate leads to suffering. But, <laughs> Thank you, Yoda. <laughs> but 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 it's true, you know. And it's 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 one of the things that's interesting. Like which it's honestly, when it comes down to it, there are two family dramas. There's the Corleone family drama, and there's the Skywalker family drama. Yeah. Both of which, when you're dealing with in this genre, offer valuable lessons when it comes to prodigal sons and how. The temptation by the dark side will lead you in different ways, whether it's Michael Corleone, whether it's Anakin Skywalker. And it's ironic, of course, because both, you know, um, if you know anything about Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas's 50-year friendship, it's fascinating that, that they both essentially, these two Bay Area mavericks, created the two family dramas that have basically influenced every other drama in their wake since 1972. And it's funny that you said Francis Ford Coppola because that scene that is reminiscent of the end of, of well, I should say Michael Corleone's last scene um, in The Godfather, in Godfather 1. Which says, which is enough. Yeah, and it's just... And it's says, just well, this, this time, this one time, I'll let you ask me my, 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 my affairs, my, my, my business. <laughs> exactly. Is it true, Michael? No. Exactly, you know, exactly. Yeah. Like, also that scene that you had with Misty that was so reminiscent of Michael Corleone's coming of age where he decides to cross that line, Luke Cage decides to cross that line, you know, at the end. That was, like, so powerful. You're obviously a Godfather, you know, well, fan. Well, well you know, the thing for me, okay... My uncle, Richard Wesley, um, wrote Uptown Saturday Night, and Let's Do It Again. And the really? way that he taught me how to screenwrite is through repeated viewings of The Godfather. So, for example, um, The Godfather offers almost every single kind of example of screenwriting rudiments. Perfect example. Okay, so expositionary dialogue. Uh, Michael, who's that scary guy over there? His name is Luca Brasi. He, he works for my father. You know, um, sequences. So a baptism is a action sequence that's intercut with music between one static action and any no number of things happening. So when you intercut, like, you know, the christening of, of, of Michael, Michael being made godfather while wiping out the five families, any number of times you'll have a sequence where one thing is happening somewhere, like, say, in court, and then while somebody talks, it's like, you know, so the, the beginning of, of episode 213, or, or, or episode 13, the finale of season two, with Mariah Dillard, I mean, I'm sorry, Mariah Stokes, apologies, Stokes, Mariah <laughs> Stokes, with Mariah Stokes in... It's um, reminiscent of that. Yeah, yeah, with her in the courtroom those flash forwards and the intercut from that action is essentially a baptism exactly. which, is, which is different than a wedding now what a wedding does is it's one large sequence with a musical element that introduces all of your major players in one venue and so you see a wedding for us um, in the first episode of Luke Cage Harlem's Paradise Raphael Sadiq's Good Man and you see Cottonmouth you see Mariah you see you know, um, I'm slipping his name right now. Um, um, uh, Salvador. Um, oh yes, I know. Yeah. <laughs> now I can't remember his name. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> what um, do you mean? So, so that, and then in addition, you introduce Misty Knight. Um, you know, Luke's at the bar. Candace is there. Mm -hmm. All the major. All the players. characters are there. Yeah. So that, and you did it again this season. Yeah. So that that so that. That's what. That's what. If if my, when my uncle and I, when we when we written together like that, the, like those are our, our um our, our shorthand. Um, and so, I've studied that movie. I've seen Godfather and Godfather Two at least separately. You know, stem to stern, fifty times each. Wow. Um, and what ha and it's often sometimes when I'm writing. Um, I either have one or two things on in the background. Um, I either am writing with Godfather 1 or Godfather 2 in the background or um, one of the 60 episodes of The Wire 
And what and the reason what happens? And I feel the wire in this season. I yeah. feel it. I feel that. I feel um, New York undercover. I feel, but it, there are moments, and there was a wire scene. I feel like in the first episode with a kid crossing the street that felt like so, something I had seen, and he was basically somebody was stopping him and asking him a question, and and just these little moments of truth in the street, like. Um, the, the gypsy cabs being surveillance. Yeah. Like we're flipping it on it. You know, there's sedans, but there are sedans. Mm-hmm. They're not the cops. There are internal surveillance. Like all those moments that are... Right. The moments that, 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 that was the moment from season two, episode six, when they're looking for Luke and Piranha and right. they run into the kid who's actually... Lonnie, who, who's the actual, the, the kid from the first two episodes, the kid who's in the barbershop when Pops got shot up, the one that Luke saves. I thought he looked familiar, but I was like, okay, yeah. I'm going to have to go back and take a look. Yeah, he's gotten older. He's grown. There's there's some themes in here, though, that are really, really fascinating. Like, it's Bushmaster has such a strong story, and it's funny because I was about to say Killmonger. The parallel. He's, um, Bush, Bushmaster has such a strong story, and... My family's from the islands, and okay. one of my uh, relatives is a, a victim of the Tuskegee experiment, which people don't realize would happen in the islands. So when you had that scene with him having a shot of something that, sh- that killed everybody else, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to cry, <laughs> because that type of stuff was done, especially for a lot of people in the islands that were merchant seamen. Yeah. And they would travel, so they knew they would travel, and they well, knew they would travel to other islands. Well, well that, that's the thing. I mean, it's like... Um and it well, also felt a little bit like the truth, by the way. Well, well like... <laughs> the comic, okay. I mean. <laughs> I, I got to be careful because I don't want to reveal story points that could be in our potential third season. Potential, because people hopefully have to watch and tweet. No, nope, no, nope, it's and, coming. And, and I'm putting it out there. It's coming. You it's going to be in third season. But the thing that's interesting is um, that was kind of a hint to the original comic. Because in the original comic, Bushmaster got his powers from the birth scene experiment the bursting process in our show in our universe the bursting process is more conspiratorial and so besides you know uh, prisoners what um, community is more disposable in the eyes of big ugly government than immigrants yeah. and so it was just a moment of you know Lack of health care, uh, everything. I'm, I'm just putting that in there and, and because, it, because it, it, it allows a number of things when you start dialing back in terms of why is John MacGyver different. It's the kind of, it's the combination of Nightshade and its use. It's not entirely Obia, Obia, you know, but it's also... It's not, but, she, but that, that was the thing. I, it, when I looked at it, after that scene when you saw him as a child, I realized it wasn't Obia. He was using Obia as a way to give reverence to his ancestors that were maroons but that was more of a spiritual thing for him the physical was that shot that shot he was one of a thousand that it did not kill right and that is why the nightshade won't kill him exactly because and then so it's like all of that and speaking of nightshade um what's the the thing that's, that's fascinating for us was that you know we had no access to black panther and vice versa but the fact that we yeah. came to similar creative solutions. They're going to swear that Marvel, it, like, it, 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 can, can, you know what they're going to say. They're going to say, oh, Marvel orchestrated all this. No, but it, it, <laughs> it, it, it blew my mind, like, because the first time that I saw Black, you know, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tight with Joe Robert Cole. The, the you know the the co-writer of Black Panther and um, Ryan I and spoke I, to him he's awesome yeah and and, and, Ryan, and Ryan and I you know know each other um, and, and and text on occasion so but the first time I'd actually seen the had seen Black Panther was when you and I ran into each other at the at the LA premiere and so we're watching it and all of a sudden that moment when um, Angela Bassett is working with with with, with, yes. the, with the mortar and pestle. Oh my God! It's like this is nightshade ritual. This is this. It's like oh, it's like, oh my God. But the funny thing is, they're connected because it is an African ritual that would have been brought, especially if he was a maroon. Yeah. That there would be no difference. It's daughters of the dust. It's all of the same, you know, yeah. elements all over again. Now speaking of of nightshade, Tilda has never had that much backstory in the in the comic, and 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 the actress that played her. Oh, Gabrielle Dennis. Yeah, she's amazing, and. The fact that you brought her, like, she's a product of rape and all these other things. And it's funny because she's good until she learns 
her origin story. And then it's almost like, okay, well, then I, I, I come by it honestly. This is what I'm supposed to do. But Mariah really plants those seeds. Oh, yeah. Well, well it's, it's interesting because <laughs> sometimes in order to arrive at the conclusion that the comics arrive to, you can go on a long departure and then bring it back full circle. You can. You because did that very well. The character's name in the comic books is Tilda Johnson. Yeah. So But she doesn't say Johnson till the end. Right. But how could she be Tilda Johnson if she's if she's Tilda Dillard? So this whole scheme of making her Mariah's daughter and of Uncle Pete and all that stuff and then having it go full circle so that by the time she says the lax Stokes is dead I'm Tilda Johnson and then all of a sudden people that know the candle like, oh my gosh she's, she is Tilda Johnson she is Nightshade I, I had an idea because they because she kept using Nightshade but then when she said it I was like oh my god they did They did. he went there oh my god and then when she walked through the doors and in, in, in oh the yeah she had yeah when she had the afro puffs and the gold headband but it was the same thing like when I saw Misty Knight walk in at the end into the club yeah. at the end of season one and she's dressed afro with the red outfit and everything like that just like when we see uh, in episode three the daughters of the dragon scene and Colleen's in white and she's in red and they're like I need them to have their own show well no that, that that's the you know the thing is it's like it's basically like how on a Wu-Tang record there will be uh, a song uh, with Raekwon and Ghostface, but they n- might not have had their solo records yet. Yeah. That's kind of like, like, like what's happening. It's like you feel the natural collaboration within the side parts of the group. Or, it, you know, it's kind of like BBD before they break off to do a BBD record. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, you know, the thing is, is, is like, will this happen? Maybe, but... It's just interesting in terms... I mean, there are a lot of things would have to happen internally at Marvel and at Netflix for that to happen. But it's just the joy of having characters that you want to see together be together. Um, you know, and the same thing happened, I think, with um, Iron Fist and Luke Cage. It's like, Well, actually, I just have to commend you because... You had Danny Rand on screen for an entire episode, and I didn't want to throw something at the TV. So, <laughs> I, but you, it, it's clearly the way you wrote it, and also Finn dialed it back, I think. And that interaction, like, I believed him and Luke in several of those scenes. Well, I mean, that's the thing was, you know, Kayla Cooper did an excellent job with the scripts, and we just knew collectively as a writing staff that we weren't afraid of people's problems with Iron Fist. It's like, you know what it's like? It's like, you know, Ray Allen playing for any other team but Miami is a different player than all of a sudden the sharpshooter that we remember him as is being like, sometimes it takes being on the right team yeah. and the combination of elements to really bring something out in terms of execution. And the thing was, was that in other words, you should direct Iron Fist. No, no I'm, 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 I'm not saying that. But, I mean, but, 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 but what I'll say is that like, I'm, I'm not afraid of other people's criticisms of other things because if I see an element of, of a character that can work in our universe that we do our way, why not go for it? Because there were, you know, there was internally there's people like, well, you know, sure, you know, that that, that you want to really do Iron Fist within Luke K. I'm like, hell yeah, we want to do it. I mean, because that, well, because it's canon, people are also looking for it. But did, did Marvel dictate anything to you this season? Did they say, like, make sure you end up here because of Infinity War and the Snapshot and all the other things? No. I mean, I mean that that's the thing is it's like um, people would be surprised at the separation between Marvel television and Marvel film from the standpoint of like I can just say that like we don't have access and you know there's there 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 isn't that level of of synergy um in terms of like knowing what's happening where in 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 in, in all things in that way um so the fans like you know every third comment on the Luke Cage trailer that we put out um by the time people hear this it will have been a couple months ago. Um, everything was like, yo, the trailer's, the, you know, the, the trailer's fire. Um, when's Daredevil season three happening? And why is, it, is Luke going to deal with the fact that, that ha- half of Manhattan is, yeah, <laughs> and the world is gone? Yeah, it's jacked up. And it's just like, well, no. I mean, you know, it's just like, 
the plot points of the Avengers in the Infinity War is going to have to solve itself. It will. And ultimately, it's, you know, you're going to have to think that either the events of Luke Cage happened before or happened after. You know, but it's, but it's up to you. No one dictated that to you. It's exactly. People, okay. So my last question: um, a lot of people said in season one that, or accused Luke Cage season one of respectability, po- respectability, yeah, respectability politics. You knew where I was going. Now, I don't think there's any excuse for that this season. Well, see, but here, here's what it is: um, every generation has a different relationship with the word nigga. Yep. There's just no way around that. So my grandfather, who was a Tuskegee Airman, and had racist white instructors that would call them niggas every single day of training as a psychological means of getting people to wash out. Of, 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 his, of his class, class class 44E, which was the um, the fifth class to graduate in 1944, his flight of his flight class, I think it started off with 100 candidates and only 20 graduated. And what my grandfather talked about was the psychological abuse. That no, it were, is. Like, and there was no, you know, people saying microaggressions. This wasn't no microaggressions. No, and that, like, exactly. Like, it's, and, it's, so, and that's the thing that I think, and, it's and, a generational... And so for his generation, there's even... Though you you might have had colloquial use of the word nigga amongst each other, that word only has one meaning. For my parents' generation, you know, post SNCC, mm-hmm. post um, you know, last poets, death of Malcolm X, death of Martin Luther King, you know, Superfly. I'm born in 1972. You know, nigga was popularized by Richard Pryor. It, it, you know, it had a different viewpoint. Then all of a sudden, you know, everyone grew the business afro, put the dashikis away, and through the 80s and the Cosby Show tried to forget about the militant 70s. Not, um, and my generation, with hip-hop, with sampling, went into our parents' closets and literally found the dashikis, found the red, black, and green, found the Malcolm X records, found Richard Pryor, and then started sampling that stuff. And then basically... NWA is almost like an offshoot of a combination of street knowledge and Richard Pryor, you know, and then the other side of that is basically Public Enemy, which is the Malcolm X speech, the last poets, mm-hmm. and, you know, so we start, you know, in our hip-hop, we start using the word nigger, and, but then at the same time, there's constant debates. Like, I come of era, of a hip-hop journalism era, where, where there were constant debates as to, should we, should we even be using this word? By using the word all the time, are we mainstreaming it? And is mainstreaming it good? The questions are being asked. And then all of a sudden, around 1993-94, Keep It Real happens. And once Keep It Real happens, then everything's like, yo, 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 nigga, boom. Right. Then all, the, all political talk is gone. And then the word is just in constant use. And then what happens is that you get to where it is now, and people just literally use the word for rhythm when they rhyme. Yeah. And so it has no meaning to this new generation, because when you have had a president... That's black. But I, but I think it does. I think there's a little bit of a meaning because of, of like things like happen like with um, when when now it's such so part of the vernacular. Everybody stops so still when a white well, person well, says it. Well, now it is because Trump's in office. Well, that's but true. If, if you're a millennial, and you know you have nothing, and 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 you have all these black shows on television. You have everyone using it on the records. You, 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 you've, you've had, you know, eight, eight years of, of a black presidency. The word had, doesn't have as much meaning to you at all. And all your friends have been growing up have been using it since you've been eight years old. Like, there's no big deal. Mm-hmm. But and, I think, I think uh, beyond the word, though, I think people were worried about the fact that he was sort of making comments on... on um, Misty, how she was dressed, and commenting on other people, and, and I just mean in the first season. Now I don't feel this at all in the well, second. I mean, see, but but here, here was the thing: it was like Luke didn't comment on Misty's dress until she cracked on him. This she said, true. "Your jacket's a little small," and so he mm. flips back. So is your dress. It's not that he's commenting on her dress being small. It's just that she just cracked on me, and I need to basically get a little bit back at her. I'm gonna throw a little salt, but I'm not gonna insult her. And then it was back and forth. It was. And, and that banter is actually continued in their Heroes for Hire type scenes yeah. that you see in this season. So uh, for um, the people who still haven't seen 
for whatever crazy reason. For the people who still have not watched Luke Cage season two, because they're they are listening to the haters. What, what, what are you What are you saying to them? Well, it's a couple of things. Okay, so it's interesting to me because they'll say, okay, Luke Cage is respectability politics because he doesn't like the N word, and everybody, all the different characters in the show have different relationships with that word. At the same time, they're saying, oh, well, you know, even the back and forth of him and Missy, he's commenting on her dress. He's not, he's not comment. I mean, he likes how she's dressed because he says, me, I ponder a woman because she's not a kid. And 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 as she later on says in, in episode nine, you know, he, he looked at me in my eyes and not in my breast. Like, you know, he's got a different, there's a different vibe going on between them. And he doesn't judge her at all from, from when, you know, they have a one night stand. It's like, so... All these things in terms of the sexual politics and then and when we start getting back to the N-word and the fact that, you know, he has a whole speech in front of Christmas addicts, like, none of these things come from respectability politics because, honestly, I don't believe in respectability politics. I'm, I'm about as liberal as they come. Yeah. And, 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 honestly, it's like Luke Cage is more influenced by Big Daddy Kane, not Herman Kane. So, yeah. I just find it interesting because then people are like, yes, we love Black Lightning because Black Lightning doesn't have that. But, like, literally, by the time Black Lightning's in the car with his daughter's driving home, being stopped by the cops, he's directly quoting what? I think Frederick Yeah, no, that's what's interesting when people say, oh, he's not like that. But the beginning of the season and his character, he very much was. I mean, and he's the And this is no shade against Black Lightning because we like Black Lightning, y'all. But, no, here's the thing. It's like, you know... The character is constantly quoting and preaching things. Yeah. And so I'm like, yo, well, like, I did it creatively because it's kind of using the show as a platform. Black Lightning's doing the same thing. You know, the Akeels are doing, you know, a similar thing in terms of using the medium to educate. But, you know, it seemed like we just kind of caught a lot of flack for things that all of a sudden were being praised in the other show. And so... It's just like... I think audiences are fickle. And I think there's... And I also think that Luke Cage season one, so many things have happened. Well, well, you know what it is? In in reality. You know know what it is? It's it's that um, as, as a show with perspective, you just have to tell the best story you can. Um, For me, the most relevant criticism that we got... It wasn't the respectability politics thing. I mean, you know, the, once the ringer said it, everyone went after it. Yeah, that. no, and I saw you on Twitter. I, I, I was I, like, I, I wonder what you're going to say. I, I mean, you were very clear. But, 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 <laughs> but my whole thing was Angelica Jade Bastian's, um, you know, criticisms of the show. Um, I actually, it's interesting because I love them because she's such an incredible writer and such an incredible reviewer that even though some of the criticisms really, really stung, being a former critic myself, it's just like I, I understood what she was saying. And the real meaning of criticism is not like, oh, I feel bad because somebody said something bad about the show. It's okay. What's being talked about and what can we do either to address this or to learn from this? And so really the thing about season two is that it addresses it from the standpoint of one of the main things she said is that this show has thought so much about Luke Cage and his powers. They haven't really thought about imagine who he is as a man. Exactly. Season two, exactly. You know, and, and season and, and, two is showing that humanity. I think. Yeah. Season two entirely is about that. It's 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 really about, you know, him in terms of what that manhood is, and him confronting his past, him letting go of childhood anger and bitterness, and coming to grips with his father, and confronting it heads on, and losing things, and making sacrifices, and some things he lost because of he was stupid, and so, like like the whole thing with Claire, and growing from that and being in a different place by the end of the show but at the same time about to make other mistakes everybody's is having different kind of revelations and then at the same time like from the pacing of the show it's like um it just seems like we we really used all 13 episodes this season you did i actually didn't feel like and i'll be perfect on perfectly honest i did feel like some of the marvel netflix issue not just with your show but with other ones in first season especially that there's one extra episode i didn't feel that this season and i also didn't feel you had any extra uh villains but i am curious to find out who is going to be the baddie in season three i'm putting out there it's going to be season three annabelle shiora or is it going to be nightshade 
tell that. Well, that's the thing. It's like the cool thing about Luke Cage is that you don't have to have just one big bad. That we're going to explore everyone's humanity. And even if somebody is the big bad, you'll have a deep understanding as to who they are and why. Um, you know, one of the things I did learn from The Wire is that even the smallest character can have an important backstory and, 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 a, um, and, and a reason. So, like, one of my favorite moments of the entire season is the moment that, that, that um, I wrote in, in the finale for Sugar as to how Sugar, you know, who we remember from the episode one, I don't even like these niggas, man. Like, you know, it was funny because when I wrote that... But, and, but Sugar actually was a voice of reason. He's like, we're walking a man down the street in a hood. How is this okay? <laughs> and and I, that scene is powerful because, honestly, that's what it takes. It doesn't... I'm not saying... I'm not against marching, and I'm not against mobs telling people that things are wrong. But many times when something happens, it takes one person to say, this is really messed up, and I'm not going to be a part of it, to even make other people think. And that it, it, it changed him because had he, had he been there he would have been basically accomplice to a horrible horrible crime well that was the thing that was interesting about 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 sugar and this is and this was one of the things that was interesting about writing it was that um, we knew that that line which is kind of a throwaway line in the pilot I don't even like these niggas maybe, it was really written for humor and it was kind of my like homage to Shane Black because I love that moment in, in Iron Man three when the guy was like I, I've only been working here for a couple of weeks whatever he says and runs off it was kind of our, our version of that but there was something about the actor um, who was so great that we just kept him around because we just loved his reactions in these scenes and we would yeah, write he's these like lines. your Coulson he's yeah. like the guy that showed up to do one thing and be really shocked at like that fist punch and then it just stuck yeah. around because he's just such a great character I mean well look, like perfect example even in episode 11 when, when Claire gets kidnapped or is, Claire is being held in the Harlem's Paradise everybody else he's just sit your fine ass down <laughs> like, like you know it's just there's something about Sean that just really He's great. Sean Reingold is he's just great. So wait, you didn't script that. He just said it that way. No, no, we scripted it. Oh, okay. but, but it's just his delivery was just was just great. And so we kept him around and there were a lot of times when like he could have been the character to get killed and we just like no, we can't kill him. And and uh, we just kept him around because I knew that I wanted to do something with him. And then finally when we get to that moment um in a Kayla script in episode 10 where he where he says, "You know what? I'm not taking this I'm not in this." And then he walks away before and then he comes to Luke in episode 11, like, you know, I want to I be on your side. Because he really didn't like them niggas, man. And then, and then 12, and then by the time in 13, he kind of becomes his gangster Bobby Fish. It's an interesting evolution because you really are able to give even the most minor villain a perspective. You're able to give him a soul. You're able to understand how this talented kid gets injured and then ends up a gangster, but that's not really who he really is. And then also what's interesting enough is that when Mariah basically calls an Order 66 on everybody in her organization, but spares Sugar, why does she spare him? Because in episode... Because eight, his mama gave her clothes. No, because, no, in episode eight, his wife, when he says, you no, know... wife, not mama, You right. know, when he, in episode eight, he says, ma'am, like, you know, do you, my wife's about your size. Do you, you know, we want me to give you any clothes. And that moment, like... Um, with um, Mariah Dillard in jail, like no, like you know, everybody but Sugar because his his wife gave gave me clothes. I'll never forget that. It's every villain has. But as Shade said, there's rules to this shit. Yeah, there's rules. Yeah, and so that's the thing is that um, you, every villain and the things that happen make sense to them. Now, now the, the the thing that I've learned over the years from having interviewed like. Um, a lot of people on both sides of the law is, and this is something that informs the way that that um, I personally write gangsters, is that the only, th you write a gangster like anybody else, the only thing that makes a gangster difference is that violence does not bother them. You know, they're just like everybody else, they're funny, they have, you know, they, they have a sense of humor, but then when it comes down to being insulted, their reaction is not to walk away, not to feel embarrassed, their reaction is to put somebody's head through a window and then go sit down and finish their meal. They have something, they have a disconnect to violence that just is not in line with the way that most people think. And that's why they're, there's a reason that they did it, but they have a certain, 
you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a light switch. Yeah, no, it's, it, but, and, and they don't see it. It's like mouse in, in Devil with a blue, blue Dress. Like, yeah. if you didn't want me to kill him, why'd you leave him with me? Well, I mean, it's, like, it's, it's just, this is what I do. What? Well, it's, it's, it's like, so for example, a perfect example is somebody like Suge Knight is like, Suge is a funny guy that listens to R&B. You know, like he, he likes like Al Green. Like he's not even the gangster rap. He's like in the R and B. And but then all of a sudden, you know, there's that there's that um, that switch that that Joe Pesci. What do you mean I'm funny? Kind of thing. That <laughs> all of a sudden, this guy that you, that you might have interviewed and been hanging around, like all of a sudden, ah, oh, here we go. And there's another side. And that's what you that's what you find with most people that that are that are on that other side is that is that the violence doesn't bother them. And but at the same time, there's a certain humanity with that, that, you know, when you're trying to, you know, write from a villain's perspective, quote unquote villain's perspective. You know, one of the things that Jeff Loeb always says is that the the villain is always the hero from his perspective. And that you always have to keep that in mind, whether you have a self-righteous villain like Bushmaster or whether you have a, a deluded villain like Mariah Dillard, from their perspective, what they're doing makes sense. And that is where we're going to end it because you got to go. Not going to say <laughs> I mean, if you have one more question, it's fine. No, well, I, the only thing I wanted to ask you was just the theme. Like, what do you want people to walk away with from season two besides breaking Netflix okay. and getting a season three? <laughs> All right. What I want people... What I want people to walk away with from season two is that I, w I want us to be not only the best superhero show that no one's talking about, I want us to be one of the best shows on Netflix, period. I want people to appreciate the nuance um, of character and the depth of acting from Mike Coulter, from Simone Missick, from Theo Rossi, from Mustafa Shakir, from Gabrielle Dennis, from Ron Cephas Jones, and particularly from Alfre Woodard. I just really hope that they all get the kind of critical and hopefully awards attention that they deserve because, I mean, the ensemble is amazing and um, writing for them and um, the way that they were directed this season is just phenomenal. And I, I, just, I just really want people to really appreciate, you know, the storytelling because, I like, you know, I feel like I love season one, but I really love season two. And, you know, and I just feel... That was the the main reason that we decided to to release all 13 episodes to the press because I realized that if we only released 10, people would say, well, you know, yeah, these 10 episodes are great, but the last three, who knows, you know, they, 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 they might, you know, not make the cut the same way how after, you know, episode seven when Cottonmouth dies, you know, the whole show fell off. So I really felt like we needed to show all 13 because we weren't going to get the same benefit of the doubt. And it's a gamble and it's a risk. Um, and who knows if critics, cause I, because we're, we're talking, you know, of course, before this comes out and before the, the, the critics, you know, I get to read what the critics say. I just, I'm just hoping that by seeing all 13 episodes and just these arcs and the conclusions and the resolutions that people will, will really understand um, what we're trying to go for. He's great, right? and really open to criticism. I was really surprised about that. There's so many people out there today who can't take criticism and can't handle rejection. And I think Cheo really listened to the fans and learned a lot from them season one. And I respect him for that. Now, I really enjoyed season two, but I want to hear what you think. Did you like Luke Cage season two? Was it better than season one? Did you like all the new characters? Did you like, like what they did with Tilda, Bushmaster, that very interesting re reveal with Shades. Also, his relationship with Mar Mariah. Like, hey, I wasn't ready for that. I'm going to tell you right now, I was not ready for their physical relationship. Don't forget, leave me a comment and let me know. Okay, so I'm, I'm really interested to hear what you guys think. And don't forget, I'm going to be in San Diego for San Diego Comic-Con. And I think I might try out my Instagram TV more there. I'm definitely going to be running around on Sci-Fi Snapchat for a bit, I think on Thursday. But I've been pondering the best way to use IGTV, and I think San Diego Comic-Con is going to be a great test. And I purchased some new gear and everything. I'm going to have like a gimbal. I'm so excited. So download the app and download Instagram TV and start following the Blurred Girl, okay? 
And don't forget, I have another new monthly podcast called Radical Geeks, which I'm doing with Angelique Roche. And that first episode that we did last month is up. Now, we'll not be recording our second episode until August when we get back from San Diego. Yep. Angelique is going to be there working for Marvel. So you'll see her inside and I'm going to be working for sci-fi. So I'll be sort of like outside because yeah, that's my life. (laughs) But in the meantime, please go listen to that podcast, The Radical Geeks on SoundCloud and subscribe and show us some love. Thank you for listening. Please don't forget to comment and subscribe on this podcast and check out my podcast sponsor, Audible, by going to audibletrial.com slash the blurred girl. Thanks, guys.